I'm Jacob Efron, an investor over at Redpoint, and this is Vital Signs, a newsletter and now podcast where we look at cutting-edge trends in health tech and the people shaping them. I recently wrote a piece on value-based care and where the space is headed, and I can't think of a better person to come on and chat through these topics than Adam Bowler. Adam started Landmark, which was one of the first businesses in the space doing at-home primary care for complex chronic patients. They took on risk for these patients, and the business ultimately was acquired by Optum for a rumored $3.5 billion. Adam then went to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, where he led them and spearheaded a bunch of really interesting models in value-based care, including direct contracting and primary care, and new models in kidney care and ambulance care. Adam now runs Rubicon Founders, an incubator and investment firm that's focused on value-based care businesses. Adam, really appreciate you coming on and kicking this off. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Jacob. Well, to start off, you know, I think people have been talking about value-based care for a while. You obviously started an early business in the space in Landmark a decade ago, uh, and have been working and incubating in the space since. You know, I'm kind of curious how building a business in this space has changed since you started Landmark. It's interesting. Right around when I started Landmark, there was, um, you know, a crop of, I think, young, talented leaders that were starting to prove out that there's nothing magic specifically about California or Florida that restricts value-based care to those particular states. And I put, you know, Chris Chen at uh, ChenMed and uh, Mike at Oak Street and, you know, the folks that were starting Agilent at the time and, you know, uh, Ravi and the other people that, that kind of were kicking it off. Alignment was started around the time too, right? You had a group of folks that were up and coming that were making those initial bets. There was a very strong amount of skepticism around whether value-based care could really exist outside of those two states in any real way, in any real risk. And I would say from a public market perspective, there was, I mean, I don't think anybody knew what that was at all. I imagine you had, you know, some of the initial conversations with physicians around these models, you know, around expanding these models outside California and Florida with payers. What were those early conversations like and, and how do you kind of contrast them maybe with some of the conversations you have today? I think much less skepticism now but an environment that, while still, look, the amount of full capitation in the country or real capitation is still small, but it's not the same thing as like a ski slope that, you know, it just, two feet of snow just fell and there's no tracks at all. <laughs> and, and so there's positives and negatives to that, right? So sometimes when there's tracks, you're like, oh, okay, I won't ski over there because that person went the wrong way or they fell down or there was a cliff over there. Uh, but on the positive side, it's really cool when there's no tracks and like you're kind of so I, I, I think there's some uh, analogs to that and in the market environment today than 10 years ago. Interesting. Yeah, no, it makes sense that there's a lot more folks going after these opportunities today, whereas, you know, it must have been much more greenfield earlier on. You obviously, you know, with Landmark, we're one of the pioneers in, in the at-home care space. And I think now it feels like there's more and more businesses and more and more folks at conferences talking about, you know, moving care to the home, uh, everything from hospital care at home to urgent care. And I'm kind of curious, as you think about as someone who spent a ton of time in these models, the place that at-home care has in, in the care model of the future, how do you think about kind of what makes sense to do in the home and what doesn't? That's a great question. So it's so funny because when we started Landmark, at-home care was not like a cool thing to do. Uh, so everybody was like, why would you do that? That's like the 50s. And then there's a TV doctor everybody would bring up and analog to that. And now like, oh, everything's like, oh, it's all moving. I saw McKinsey just like really the 10 trends and, you know, everybody at home. I, I probably divide up into two different areas. One would be convenience care and the other is, you know, really complex care. Obviously, Landmark uh, was the latter. I do think on the former, it makes sense a lot, either at home or virtual care. 
Um, and so I think from the perspective of what Amazon Care is doing and other people in the model, uh, where you can either drive at home from a convenience perspective or virtual, that makes a lot of sense. And then I think you want to do at home care for complex chronic, where I think you can over apply the model uh, is that all care should suddenly be delivered at uh, a house. And like, from my perspective, it's one thing if it's convenient and, you know, there's a sect of people that want to pay for that. Uh, at the same time, you can't really affordably drive all care, you know, to the home all the time. Sure, I'd love my physician to come to my house all the time, me personally, but like, I'm not a complex chronic patient, like that's not a good use of healthcare resources or that physician's time to come to me all the time, unless I want to pay a lot for it. Um, uh, so I think just like distinguishing that and what the right markets are. And so like anything at first, everybody says, oh, that's not possible or that doesn't make sense. And then, you know, and then it changes around. I feel like I sound like Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos. Then you're, everybody fights you and then, uh, well, you, you got the black shirt on. You just need you just need the turtleneck, yeah, and then you got the good whole, point. Yeah, whole no, thing. no. I mean, like you know, you called and you said let's wear black shirts today, and then I thought of a, yeah, you know. <laughs> like you said, when you started Landmark, maybe at home care was something that that was seen as from a different era or something that didn't make sense. I mean, how, how did you kind of even come to you know the idea of Landmark and, and the notion that this model? I mean, now it seems so straightforward, but I think it's because you have skied some of those tracks for the first time that now others are looking at. I'm curious what you saw at that time that got you so excited about that opportunity. You know, we didn't set out, actually, interestingly enough, to start a home-based medical group at all. I will say, and this probably, this harkens to my approach whenever I've worked on businesses and what we do at Rubicon too, uh, which is to start from the root of a problem always. And so, in essence, the work around Landmark started with, there is a broad issue with chronic patients and expenses are really high. And so, like, what do you do about it? And what do you do about it that's not just something that sounds good? You know, because there are certain things like we just talked about, oh, it sounds good. Let's bring home care to everybody. Well, that doesn't make much sense. Uh, and, you know, when markets go, markets go up and markets go down. I've never found myself a good timer one way or the other. Uh, and I think your best protection about that is not just following what sounds good and, and being intrinsic. And so we spent a lot of time saying what actually works to make an impact from a medical loss ratio perspective that improves quality. Um, and at the end of the day, the VA uh, was one of those models. And the, the thing that, like, for me, a test on these things, and I work on it with my team now, is um, what does specific data say, right? Everybody has an opinion. And so the United States is a big place. Usually you can find places where there are data where things have been applied. You don't have to make stuff. I mean, look, I don't invent compounds, right? Uh, so there's nothing like fundamental science base that you know comes out of what my work is. Uh, and so at the end of the day, there are always analogs. Uh, in, in, and so in the VA's case, uh, because they're an at-risk entity, uh, uh, they had published a couple of studies in a double-blind way on their home-based primary care model. And we spent, that, that was, I think, one of the best indications. There were other people we spent a lot of time with. I mean, it was months of work. And we saw, somewhat unintentionally, by the way, because I don't think the VAs, well, I know, their intended goal in home-based primary care was not to save money. Because in government, what, you know, you're not naturally thinking of that. <laughs> that's, that's not usually the main goal. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so it was a byproduct, um, a, a great byproduct, by the way, and they did study. And so we thought, well, this is interesting. If, and the fundamental dynamic that is 
special here is they're at risk um, uh, and they're a big they're, they're a big physician group doing this. And so we said, if we could take this and do it, then you would unlock a value, a lot of value. So I think that one of the fundamental um, differences from a landmark perspective, or one most important, is we unlocked what we did, I think, because of a change of incentives. Because in a fee-for-service model, that wasn't possible. Um, and then uh, we put the care model into place for a very specific purpose. Instead of starting the other way around and saying, yeah, it'd be really cool to offer, because it is really cool to offer those services to people, uh, but how do you find the right sustainable financial model so that it doesn't just go away, uh, you know, and it's not a nonprofit? Totally. No, I mean, I think that it's a really interesting point about finding models that have worked at, you know, some subscale and then finding out which ones actually could scale or, or have the economics. Because I think, you know, to your point of the pendulum shifting the way in the other direction, I feel like, you know, while there weren't that many people building these risk-based businesses before, now it seems like everybody wants to take on risk for every set of patients, you know, in every specialty in, you know, urban areas, rural areas, using virtual care models, all sorts of things. And I'm curious how you think about kind of the limits of where it does and doesn't make sense to build these kind of risk-based businesses. I think being paid on an outcomes basis is always possible as long as you can measure what you're doing. So it, it becomes less relevant in little populations or something. Then it becomes what is the right care model that you're applying to that population. And so again, going toward things that sound good, you'll have some people talk about, in essence, what I would consider a very heavy clinical model, maybe landmark-like or, or other clinical models applied to the broad Medicaid population, for example. Now, like in my opinion, that sounds great, uh, right? There's no question that Medicaid patients don't receive the same level of care as commercial pay, uh, patients, largely because Medicaid pays less. Uh, there's improvement to be made and there's uh, inequality in our healthcare system. However, if you are going and taking outcomes risk and doing a heavy, heavy model for all Medicaid patients. Like to be clear, Medicaid patients are not all sick, they are poor. And so you can't just give massive amounts of heavy care to every single Medicaid patient, uh, because while on average, a Medicaid patient is not as healthy as a commercial patient usually, uh, that's a very different thing than treating older people that tend to have more health problems because they're older. Uh, so all this to say, I think it's really important, and you can take risk in Medicaid, by the way, but the model needs to match the needs uh, of the population and needs to be set up the right way, or else it just will sound good and fundamentally not work. Um, and so I think you can take outcomes-based payment, wh whether it's risk, full risk or not, um, in any population, as long as it's tailored the right way, and as long as, honestly, the N or the number of patients is high enough to where it's a measurable thing. Yeah, no, that ma that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, having you know an enough concentration in the areas you're you're operating in as well, uh, you know, makes a tremendous amount of sense. You you were on the policy side for a bit, and it feels like most of these models have happened in Medicare Advantage to start. You know, I think there's lower reimbursement rates in, in Medicaid. But wondering as you think about like the policy side, you know, anything that can be done to kind of continue accelerating these models beyond Medicare Advantage. So I think there's a bunch of reasons why Medicare Advantage has started and Medicare generally. Like, so my intent at CMMI uh, relative to you know models like direct contracting, which became REACH ACO, like other models was 
to enable physicians to take risk uh, or take outcomes-based payment, right, in, in ways like they would do in different markets. From a Medicare Advantage perspective or Medicare perspective, a couple elements. One is it's an older population <laughs> and it's easier to take risk on an older population. The hardest thing to take risk on in a way is a healthy population because when you think about bell curves, right? It's why, by the way, this is why exchange plans lost so much money at the beginning. They had no history. And if you think about healthy patients and a bell curve, there are a lot of people that have no healthcare cost. And then at the very far end, there's a lot of people with multi-million dollar healthcare cost. That's a really difficult thing to insure, especially without history. Medicare Advantage populations are easier to insure uh, because let's say average age, I'm making this up, I don't know, let's say it's 72, 75. There aren't that many people at that age that don't have any medical issue at all because they're older. Uh, and uh, at the very far end of the scale, um, think about uh, people that have multi-million dollar significant healthcare claims. Those are car accident victims, um, NICU babies. Um, those are generally not 90-year-old people that are complex and chronic. Um, if they get in a car accident like that, uh, they're not getting a transplant, uh, et cetera, right? So uh, it's an easier, it looks like a bell curve. It's easy to insure. That is one reason. Uh, the second reason is, it was there are lives in insurance companies uh, to take risk on. Uh, we can get into other areas, um, and then you know some of that. And then from a care model perspective, you can make a difference. You had a risk adjustment mechanism. Uh, so there's a discussion back and forth on documentation and approach. So there's a number of elements I think that made it um, successful. Um, I think as you look at other populations, I'll, I'll tell you some of the difficulties, even from a policy perspective. Medicare tends to be easier because it's federal to make major differences. Uh, when you're in the administration uh, and you're running things, and think about actually the person that runs um, state now uh, for CMS is fantastic. I actually tried to recruit him a lot when I was at CMMI. Um, I think he's really great, came from Massachusetts. But he does not control every state Medicaid plan, obviously. Uh, and so he has more limitations in what he can tear down. Move over to commercial, and again, your government ability to impact things at scale is harder, let alone that commercial healthcare plans mostly don't even insure the population. They operate on an ASO basis, so they're insured by individual employer. So I would say the difficulty you have in commercial and Medicaid is to some extent, less impact because they're not as sick. Uh, uh, fragmentation in base in how you drive it. Um, uh, and so th those things make it more difficult and incentives make it more difficult. That said, I think it's really important because I think that if you think about generations of risk model, you can't just rely on one population. And I, I do think that risks and outcomes-based payment will evolve and that physician groups will evolve to saying, okay, we're doing some of the easier things. Um, now let's think about uh, how to take the next steps. Um, so how do we think about multi-specialty groups uh, where folks are employed? How do we think about, you know, like a cataract surgery? Why, why are, are we not doing that in office or ASC versus a hospital? Like they're, Examples like that where you start saying that's really silly from the perspective of cost, from a patient care perspective, from a convenience perspective, 
and I think those will be next generation things. And the nice thing about Medicare is you can build out around that. And I think that that's kind of the next approach. There's some systems that are kind of really far ahead on on adopting these models, and others that are you know still uh, a bit behind and, and more in the fee for service world. Uh, I'm curious what you think you know ends up happening to you know maybe some of the slower moving folks here uh, on on taking on risk and and ultimately kind of what the roles of, of payers look like too, as you know more and more of their books end up kind of being subcapitated out to different entities that take on risk. Yeah, I think that so a couple of thoughts. One is, and I think this was um, important to me from a government perspective, which is. Not everybody has to or should take risk or capitation. Not everybody's meant to do that. Uh, and it's to your point, it doesn't really work if everybody does it actually, right? Because then everybody's just jockeying for it. And then you're always gonna need specific services. So you can't like cap it, it, it obviously gets crazy complicated, crazy quick. And so to some extent, payment for services is always gonna exist. What I hope happens over time is you have a layer of folks that are broadly accountable, um, and then their job is to measure within a fee-for-service-based context different services. So I, all this to say, I don't think anybody has to force what they are. I actually honestly might specialize if I were somebody to say, listen, we're really good at taking risk, but if you're really good, if you are not in that realm, that's okay. There's a lot of ways to add a lot of value and in essence be value-based that are not risk also. Right, like I, you can be a highly efficient, high quality provider and be really proud about what you do. And I, somebody came in. Um, I was at a meeting last week, uh, and, and it, it's a CEO of a company who's a phenomenal person, and they do mental health care services, and they work with employers. And um, he was presenting, and uh, there were some other people that knew risk really well, and he sort of made a comment and said, like, well. Like we like to think of ourselves as value-based, but I'm sure you guys won't think of it from the capitation perspective. And um, what he was doing was um, really, they were tracking behavioral health outcomes um, and they were paid somewhat on success. It was definitely not capitation in employer-based, which is pretty much almost impossible. But my point to him as a CEO is like, you're creating a lot of value. Right. There's a mental health issue aspect. You've actually tracked outcomes. You're not just you're not a pill mill like you're seeing whether people you qualitatively decided, quantitatively measured uh, impact from an anxiety, depression perspective. You're creating value for the employers. And by the way, an employer value isn't just limited to medical health care costs. Um, it's and you may not be saving medical health care costs. I don't know. So a lot of the folks that he were working with, he was working with are high hardworking younger folks that have anxiety and depression because they're working really hard. Uh, and if I'm an employer, yeah, I have my medical expense, but I have their own quality of life and whether they stay with me from a retention perspective and if they like their lives uh, and if they are going to work hard and yeah. So like there are so many other aspects. So anyway, all that to say, I think there are a lot of ways to measure value is not the same as risk. Value means are you delivering a service that really makes a difference to people and you're doing it in a positive way. Uh, and then there's different elements to add. So I would encourage like, I think every provider should strive toward value-based care from that perspective. Some, I, th I think outcomes-based care from a risk-based perspective, capitation can be great. Uh, by the way, no model is infallible, right? Invaluable, right? That in capitation too. I, I, I think the risks of pure fee-for-service greatly outweigh the risks of full capitation, but 
nothing's perfect. And there are, we need to watch full capitation too to make sure it achieves value. So there, there's no like, you know, you know what I mean? No, definitely. I mean, I guess that even in the 90s when some of this stuff was being tried, there was always the fear that, you know, folks would scrimp on care in some way or, you know, to your point on incentives always being the thing that drives drives what folks do here. You know, I think it, it makes a ton of sense to, you know, to, and also to measure things in different ways as well. I think that's, that's super interesting. A comment on that, because I think it's important, is from a landmark perspective, 90, I don't know, 9% of the time, 98% of the time, a very, very high percent of the time, Lowering medical costs for us equated to better and higher quality patient care. There are always exception cases. And by the way, if you follow the exception cases and you shunted care for somebody on that 1% where it didn't, first of all, it's difficult to manage that. It's unethical <laughs> and it's not necessary at all. But just to be clear, like part of the federal government's job, and that was part of my view of my job at CMMI, CMS, is always to make sure that the patient is protected. And so you always need guardrails around these things. Nothing's perfect. Totally. You implemented a tremendous amount while you were at CMMI. Uh, you know, a ton of these models that are shaping kind of care today. There's, there's lots to do in healthcare still. You know, if you had a magic wand on the policy side, what's kind of like one thing you'd do that you think would kind of meaningfully improve care in the country? I think that, uh, first of all, I, you know, it's funny, like some of the current administration priorities, I, it's always interesting the things that are like, deemed to be political or not political, right? Like, you know, oh, administration priority right now in terms of equitable healthcare and that, like, I don't know anybody that's in the healthcare system that thinks the healthcare system today is an evenly distributed, it doesn't matter. Like, that's an American priority, right? And by the way, it was my favorite thing that I liked on CMMI. I never felt political pressure one way or the other, right? Your job there is to drive better patient care at lower cost. That's not Republican, that's not Democrat, that's American. And so I think if I could think about things going forward and how to improve things, I think there's a nice base from an outcomes-based care model. I think that CMMI did what it should do on the models. Uh, I had somebody call me and say, oh, direct contracting, like, are you upset? The, that, you know, they took that and now I was like, what do you mean am I upset? Like, do you, it's not called Adam Bowler contracting, first of all. Uh, number two, like what an administration should do if, if they're thinking about their job in terms of improving results is take whatever is prior and not scrap it because prior, to, but build on it, which by the way, is exactly what happened. And I think improved. And so if you ask me what I hope is when Patrick Conway ran CMMI, there was a lot of learning that went on, right? And so we learn what works in a model, what doesn't. Uh, and then I, what we try to do is refine, build kind of a common chassis. And what I hope for them from a CMMI perspective is that they continue to refine, make it better and introduce their own things. I would say one, one thing I would like to see happen, I, think, I hope there's action and bipartisan action on the drug side at some point. You know, I, and it's interesting, again, to be clear, pharmaceutical innovation and what pharmaceutical companies, they've saved massive amounts of lives. They, I mean, some of these therapies coming out are unbelievable, right? So I'm a fan. I'm not a fan of like other developed countries paying more than, but there, something needs to be reconciled there. And I actually think the pharma issue is less an issue of pharma making crazy profits all the time. Their EBITDA margins aren't crazy, crazy. 
The problem is how much the United States EBITDA margin is versus other countries. So I, I just hope we can make meaningful progress. Maybe we won't. There isn't a great history there, honestly, of us making meaningful progress, but things change. And there was a not great history in other industries, and then there became history of bipartisan progress. So one thing I will say from a government perspective is I always, and I retain hope and believe always, because I saw it, that good policy can win, that it can and, and does win sometimes, not all the time. <laughs> no, I mean, it, that, that makes a tremendous amount of sense, you know, on the drug side as well. And, you know, even there, there's, there's folks, uh, you know, I think some of these value-based models are starting to be explored too. You know, there's the price difference between, uh, between countries, but also I think just, you know, making sure, you know, when we are paying, we're paying for, for stuff that actually drives value. Because to your point, there's, there's some tremendously impactful uh, therapeutics. I was talking with a large health system uh, the other day, and it actually made a comment that, that is a very good one, which is so much of our effort on drug pricing and efficacy and all that is at the beginning very little effort once something is approved to compare multiple things and then to like run little, you know, types of, they don't have to be full clinical trials because they're already approved, but how do you decide which one to use? And usually that's just left up to people that market to physicians instead of a science-based decision. Totally. Well, I guess, you know, you're building a lot of these risk-based businesses today. As you think about, you know, the common needs across companies, uh, I guess I'll shamelessly ask you, like, you know, any requests for startups or things that you find missing in the space, you know, across the companies you work with or, you know, across your time in, in this industry? Just on the positive note, I will say on the healthcare side, relatively, I'm like, I'm very happy about all the talent that is coming into services and next generation services, because I, I, um, I used to work at a healthcare analytics company. Uh, uh, I started out uh, on the investment side and I moved into this and there was a uh, one of my friends came with a group. I was in the Bay Area. One of my friends came with a group of um, business school students and they came in. We were the only healthcare. They were going to like Facebook and a bunch of other places. This is, I don't, this is probably like 12 years ago. I don't know. And he was like, uh, so Adam, like, how do you get anybody to join the company when you have all these other, he was basically like, there are other much better options for people. And I was like, number one, you're my friend, so you shouldn't say that. And number two, like, you know, some people like healthcare because of the impact versus, you know, social media. It doesn't like, there are people that think about it like that. And so I think what's happened over time is there are so many more people that are coming in that are bringing a really different perspective. And I'm like, super excited about that. I think it's like really important for the industry. At the same time, and this is natural in the context of it, there's not that much experience um, in, let's say, even as we're talking about, it's very fun to talk about capitation and risk, et cetera, or talk about value-based care. The amount of companies that actually know how to do that are not that many. And you know, just to note on it, it's not rocket science by any means, but I liken it to, there are a number of ingredients. It's like baking a cake. You can look at the specific ingredients, but if you don't have any sense of the exact measure of them and they all have to come together kind of right, then it falls flat. Um, and so uh, I, that will come. I mean, I, I, that's not, you know, there's nothing, you know, I think as you have talent from companies like Landmark and all the other people, people dissipate and they combine together. And my biggest suggestion on some of these things is you can always bias and say, listen, healthcare is so fucked up, like it's so messed up. Let's just bring totally new people to it. Or you can say, 
you know, forget about all these young people coming uh, from technology. They don't know anything. We're just going with only the ex, you know, United and Humana guys. That are, there's a middle ground there, of course. Uh, and in healthcare, given the nature, I always recommend, like in anything, to take a little bit of a moderate path there because there are things and rules that you should ignore because if you do fundamental research, they don't totally make sense. There's a reason why California and Florida oriented toward risk early and there are elements and ingredients. So then the question is, and let's not pretend every state is California and Florida. There are reasons why there were barriers in the states. And so I think the key here is not to say, throw up our hands, it only works here. Why is it working in those places and how can we address those in a thoughtful way? You need some healthcare experience to do that, but you also need outside experience to not just throw up your hands right away. So anyway, I think there's some balance and I think that will naturally happen. Super interesting. Well, Adam, I feel like we could talk for hours, uh, but you've got businesses to build. So I will be uh, respectful of your time. I guess just, just to wrap up here, people who want to learn more about your work over at Rubicon Founders, you know, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm, I'm an easy email person, which is adam at rubiconfounders.com uh, or I'm on LinkedIn or whatever. So either way is a great route to reach out to me. I'm pretty responsive. Well, thanks so much again. Yeah, really appreciate it. Well, this is Vital Signs, and that was Adam Bowler. A huge thanks again to Adam for coming on. A, a really fascinating conversation. Definitely subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode. Uh, we'll be sitting down with Dr. Mandy Cohen. She's the former Secretary of North Carolina's Department of Health and Human Services, the former COO of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid, and the current CEO of Validate Cares. See you in two weeks. Looking forward to it.